We blew a tyre and rolled the car end on end six times. Fractured my neck in two places, fractured ten ribs, punched the lung, fractured my skull in two spots. Two foot two heavy responding code one. We have a that lady unconscious. Topic approach one three two zero. Hi, I'm Landa Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and this is a podcast series about mateship, about life in the bush, and about the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in servicing rural communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. I was in a bit of hysterics, and I said, I've killed this fella, I killed this boy, the car's on top of him. And no mate said, oh, he might be okay. And I said, how can he be okay? There's a car on top of him. When people talk about living in remote Australia, it's sometimes hard to imagine if you haven't ever experienced or seen those vast landscapes. In this episode, our guest lives on one of the world's largest cattle stations called Clifton Hills. This property in remote South Australia is over 16,500 square kilometres of rolling desert sand hills, great expanses of river floodplains and rich red stony downs. To understand how big this is, it takes five hours to drive from the northern boundary to the southern boundary of Clifton Hills Station. And the closest town is more than three and a half hours drive on dirt roads. And even once you get there, there is still no bitumen. Our guest on this episode managed to walk away from not one, but two accidents so severe it's amazing a funeral wasn't held afterwards. Peter Nunn is the station manager of the vast and remote property of Clifton Hills. So, Peter, have you lived in remote South Australia for very long? Yeah, I've been here um, five and a half years at Clifton Hills, but spent a fair bit of time around Birdsville and then, you know, grew up in the bush my whole life. So, so you know, always like being remote, I suppose, yeah. What do you love about it? Uh, freedom. A bit, and then um, one other thing I, I like about Clifton is it's a challenge every day, and there's some big days, and then there's always action or something going on, or, or you know, so you're always sort of on your toes, and you're not sort of settling down. A lot of driving here, and a lot of flying to get around, but it's half like a final frontier, and and like um, a lot of other big places are sort of become factories now. I suppose you know they just produce cattle and they got everything a bit regimented, but here you know. We're a bit sort of old style, I suppose you'd still say, and we, we we go to stock camp and we go out and muster and brand and truck the ones we want to truck. And then, you know, and um, we just sort of work. We're not working the schedule, we're working to the season and to the, if it's hot, we don't move many cattle. And if it's good weather and we go and in, get into it. <laughs> yeah. So what would a regular day for you look like as a station manager? Like what does your role call for? Oh, well, so in normal time, like for most part of the year, we've got the whole full camp here and we'll be either camped out. So say we're in the mustering camp, get up and I'll start the generator, <clears throat> cook the men a bit of breakfast. A bit. How many men would there be? Uh, anywhere from five to ten, you know, because we have, there might be um, maybe five, six, seven in the camp, a couple of chopper pilots and if truck drivers are there. And we've got a camp van with a shower in it and a little kitchen and a generator diesel tank, water tank, and, you know, and then we'll get, say we'll get up, so it's always in the dark, you get up, get up in the dark, cook breakfast, I'll cut a lunch. If we're mustering, you get the horses and the bikes ready the night before, so you just go over there, give your horse a bit of breakfast before we have breakfast, and then um, 
get the bikes or the, and the horses and head out where we're going. The choppers go out there and we bring them back to that. We always camp at the yard we're sort of mustering into. It's bigger days, you're getting back in the dark, but most of the time you're sort of, you're trying to look after the cattle and you don't want to muster them too far, we don't, because so we try and get back to every yard sort of mid-afternoon or to a yard, holding yard, so they're not, biggest thing looking after the cattle, cattle always come first, 100% of the time. Then you sort of knock off and you still got to water the cattle, water your horses, feed your horses, buddy, fill your bikes up ready for the next day. And then, you know, and then so then the next few days we'll be processing those cattle and trucking the ones we want to truck away and branding the calves and then getting, sort them cattle out for a couple of days and we'll let them go, the ones that we're letting go there. And then we will um, start to get started all over again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Does that mean that you spend a lot of time away from the station itself, from your family? Um, yeah. So um, Fiona and the kids are back here and my wife and two boys. And so Fee comes out. They come out as much as they can, but because Bo does school there, he can't. Um, they can't be out all the time. Yeah, so I try and get back a bit now and there here, but you know, because Fiona's here on her own a lot, just her and the kids. And like, if um, something goes wrong or generator breaks down, or she's always got phone messages or something, you know, changing trucking dates or something happening. So um, you get back and and I talk to her on the sat phone when we can. But if she's here on her own, I would get back probably twice a week get back to the house and then sometimes you might, you know, other times you might be back four times, other times you might not be back for a week or more, ten days, you know, so it depends where you are and what you're doing. What does Fiona think of of life as a station manager's wife? Does she find the isolation difficult or does she, uh, is she a bush girl and, and it's just part and part of her fabric? Yeah, she's she done spend a lot of, she spent a lot of time in the bush now she she didn't she grew up at Bathurst like on a farm, and um but she spent a lot of time on stations and she she likes living out here she probably gets lonely the lack of women like blokes we can we're working together and sort of connect and then um the men and I and she sort of gets a bit um, left out I suppose she but you know she comes out and helps us and works with us all the time and she cooks for the men I think I got a big job but like. She's got to ask why I cook breakfast because she's got to cook, teach Bo, look after Saxby, clean the houses, any buildings, get ready for any guests coming, do the garden, um, do all the office work. So, <laughs> um, Huge. It is harder for women. I, I know that out in the bush than it is for blokes because there's a pile of blokes out here. There's only a, a few people, women around, so, <laughs> you know. Um, so you, you say you've got a good catch with Fiona, obviously. Uh, she's very good. Now, Peter, when you were young, uh, you grew up in Stonehenge in um, remote Queensland with your family. Can you tell me a little bit about growing up in, in that remote part of Queensland? Yeah, well, at the time, we probably didn't think it was remote. Um, I got, so I grew up with mum and dad and three brothers at the station. Then I got three older sisters and older brother, but they are living on, uh, in South Australia on stations. Mum and dad originally from South Australia. And then they bought that place up at Stonehenge, Sunnyside is called, and that's where us younger four boys were born. We were always out mucking around. We had our horses and our bikes and going little adventures. And we were, me and one brother, Matt, there was one older boy, Luke, he's about five years older than me, and Cameron's five years younger. But me and Matt were only 18 months apart, so we, we hung out a fair bit, you know, because we were pretty close in age, going on little adventures and... and um, <laughs> And, you know, you'd poke off and 
come back that night. We had a lot of fun um, growing up there. And then Dad, because only a smaller place and there wasn't the many staff, you'd get someone in to help busy. But we probably got a lot more experience because Dad relied on us to be the to be the stock camp, you know, for him. Like we were home every night there, not camping out there. But you know, we were we were did everything. You know, we had to. Learn from a young age, I suppose. Well, you're, the Nun family is actually generations of pastoralists, um, if I understand right. Your family goes way back in South Australia as, as, as being people of the land. Now, what happened? What was your first um, encounter with an accident? I understand there was something about a rodeo fundraising event for the Royal Flying Doctor Service and something happened at that event. <laughs> um, yeah, so mum and dad... Um, they're on a radio committee at Stonehenge there and I <clears throat> raised money for a flying doctor. Anyway, I was um, 10 years old, fell off a fence, as I did, swinging muck, kids mucking around trying to jump off the top of the fence and um, I fell down and broke my arm anyway. They are calling mum over the loudspeaker and she thought she'd won a raffle. Um, <laughs> Dad comes along, wanders along and they said, oh, I'll get the flying doctor with a flying long range. She said, no, we're trying to raise money for a flying doctor. We're not going to waste it driving him. So he um he said his mother can drive him, so she drove me to Longreach, put a cast on my arm, and then drove me back the next day. And he was that way. Said no, we'll raise money. We don't want to waste it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, wasn't a wasn't a wasn't a severe emergency. We always sort of supporting a flying doctor is a big part of our lives. So we're always trying to support him. Um, and Dad's a pretty tough love sort of fella. So yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. It's like how long was the ride from Stonehenge or from the rodeo where you were to Longreach? Two hours. <laughs> Only two hours with a broken yeah. arm. <laughs> yeah. So then um, you ended up down Birdsville. Where where did you end up from? You moved from Queensland. Yeah. And then where did you we, go from there? I was Queensland, and then I just left school, went to boarding school in Toowoomba, and we left school, and then. Two days after I finished school, I went driving. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, was a, there was a driver near home and he, he called Dad on the two-way and he says, Pete finished school? Dad said, yeah. And he said, um, oh, does he want a job? And Dad said, oh, I'll drop him off this afternoon. <laughs> Let's get rid of him. <laughs> um, and that was the end of that. And away I went. And then, oh, and then it was a bit dry <laughs> and everything was sort of poked around and so we went down and... Um, Fiona and I phoned us from Bathurst and we had a job in a, a feedlot there. One day it was raining and cold and I was helping this fellow with some sheep that were on the feedlot. There was some sheep as well anyway. Um, it was freezing cold, mucking around with these sheep. My phone kept ringing. I eventually answered it was my brother, younger brother on the sat phone. Anyway, he said, manager of Cliff and Hills are left. They're looking for a manager. And I said... I'll take it. I want it because <laughs> it's rather cold. I just didn't want to be down there anymore. And Clifton Hills, yeah, what's the average temperature at Clifton oh. Hills? I think it's like yeah, 45, yeah. isn't it? It's been 48, 50 degrees <laughs> this last week. So, um, yeah, we're going from one extreme to the other. Yeah, when we come here, October 2015, yeah, it was running one air con on the whole place and we're all trying to sleep on the one air con under the whole. It was, um, yeah, me and Fiona and about five men <laughs> trying to keep cool off this one aircon and been here ever since, poking around, yeah. Now, in 2016, you and station hand Jared Coulthard, you were driving back to camp, so you'd been out 
uh, mustering, I presume. And you were in a four-wheel drive and what happened? Uh, we were going back and we were running a bit late and probably rushing things a bit. And we, we blew a tyre and rolled the car end on end six, six times, threw Jared out. Yeah, and I stayed in the car bouncing around. Um, but yeah, we tipped her over. Can you, uh, I can't even conceive of a, of a four-wheel drive rolling six times end to end. What sort of speed had you been doing? Oh, we're doing 120. We were going a bit quick. Blew a tyre, pulled us off the road and I said, hold on, Jared, we're going over here. So he grabbed hold of her. He's only a little skinny fella. Tipped her over, end on end anyway. So then, but luckily, the birds will track no one on it. Like we tipped it over right across the road from where a fella was driving a bulldozer, pushing up dirt for the road to resheat it. And he's seen the whole thing. He's just getting started for the morning. And he come over and he's... I was in the car still, and I got out, crawled out through the window. I had a look around and realised Jared, when we're going over, because I never got knocked out, but I knew Jared wasn't in there anymore. You know, everything slows right down. And Jared, I thought, Jared's not in here. Um, but anyway, um, everything was flying around the car and hit me in the face. And I got out and I was looking for him amongst the gear, and I couldn't find him. And I felt underneath the car, and I could feel his, his hair and his head. Anyway, so I, I'll mate come over and I was, I was in a bit of hysterics and I said, I've I killed this fella, I killed this boy, the car's on top of him. And the old mate said, oh, he might be okay. I said, how can he be okay? There's a car on top of him. And I ran back over there and I could hear Jared yelling out. I said, well, get the car off him. And old mate was a bit tight. He said, oh, just wait, help's on its way. And I said, I'll get the car off him. So he brought his car over and I just happened to trip over the chain. I had my toolbox and I grabbed that. And we pulled the car off Jared and I ran back around there and he stood up straight away. He just stood up and he said, what's happened? I said, we rolled the car and he, he had a broken collarbone and a, a pretty bad knock to the head like he'd been knocked out so he didn't remember what was going on. But he hadn't been squashed by the car? Well, the um, car was upside down on its roof. The sort of swampy country where we rolled it over and there was little hollow points in it and he's a little skinny fella and he was just in this little hollow and... When I felt under, I could feel his body, and for somehow, luck or fate or whatever, he just somehow crumpled up into the little thing and fitted exactly in this little hole, <gasps> neat as. And when the car landed on him, nothing was really, only sort of touching his shoulder, so nothing. And when he come out the window, he must have come out clean, um, come out clean and just slipped straight out, and nothing never, never landed on him at all. Amazingly. Someone watching over us. Very lucky. And then, so they, the father fully called his co-workers and they come along. And then I was, I was, um, I'd cooled down then, you know, running around flat out and worried about Jared and everything. And then he cooled down and I sat down and I, you know, I couldn't get up. Um, not that I couldn't move my legs, I just froze up all my muscles. I broke a big mob of ribs and, um, fractured three vertebrae on my back. So you'd been running around trying to save Jared with a broken back? Yeah. Um, well, I sort of, I, I, I blame myself a bit, a fair, I do blame myself a fair bit still. So I didn't, I thought, oh, well, this is my, you know, I've got to make sure he's right. Anyway, so they laid us down in the shade then, waiting for the flying doctor to come and get a stretcher. Who called the flying doctor? So the bloke that was driving the, the dozer, his co-workers were not far away working on the road as well and, and probably 
25k away in a camp, 30k anything I said, eight. He called them and they come out and they called the flying doctor. Where would the flying doctor land uh, in such a remote place? At the homestead here. So we went far. We're only probably 15k from the homestead when it happened. We'd only not long left. Yeah, we got a good strip here at the house. Yeah, not many, not many people could say they have their own airstrip. Certainly Clifton Hill Station does. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we've got a good one right here, right here at the house it is too. Um, and then my brother, Matt, the same brother I said we were pretty close in age, he was here working. Anyway, he come along in a truck um, full of cattle, in a road train full of cattle, coming down the road and he's looking for a seeker. We're meant to be up at the camp and he's laid up and he thought, oh, I'll find him on the road. Anyway, he sees my car all smashed up and um, he's, we were there all there and everyone was standing around and he come along and he just seen my and Jared's feet sticking out from behind this car, see, and so he thought we were we were dead, see, so he comes, he jumps out the truck and comes sprinting over, didn't even stop the truck and he had a lot, another bloke in there with him and that other bloke had to um, jump out of his passenger seat into Matt's seat and stop the truck, um, <laughs> stop it from moving. <laughs> and Matt come over anyway, all good. Um, flying doctor come about lunchtime and flew us oh, direct to Adelaide then yeah probably three or four weeks I was away three weeks or more but got over that all good and hadn't touched wood hadn't given me any trouble since yeah Okay, so you get through this outrageous incident with flipping a four-wheel drive six times end-to-end going 120 kilometres an hour in this remote part of South Australia. You recover amazingly and uh, so does your um, your friend Jared who had a car land on him. <laughs> um, then I was amazed to then hear that there was um, more recently – another ordeal that you went through relating to a motorbike. Would you mind telling me about that one? Yeah. We, um, a big flood and we can't get over the western side of the place if there's a big flood. So we had to go up around through Burzel. So it's 200k to Burzel and then another 150 down to sort of where we want to be. And we were down there mustering and we'll get, we've got a fair mob of cattle together and we had to give them, make about a um, four-day walk up to where we could get trucks to, to truck them out. We were um, walking them up there and it was the last day before we got to this yard and we are going to truck them, hold them out there, tail them out there for a day or two and then truck them out. In the morning we let the cattle out and Shannon Bell was there. She was a stock, stock woman, sorry, and then um, another fellow, Michael Ems, they all started the cattle and there was a, I got two other girls were in the camp doing another job. And I said, I'll bring the loose horses up so we have spare horses. We always, you know, when you take your horse, you've got the ones you ride today and the ones you rode yesterday and the ones you're going to ride tomorrow. So about 15, 20 horses. I said, I'll bring them up and then I'll, we'll put them as a cattle and we'll just walk them all along together. And I said, right, eh? I got hopped on this bike. God, I just hopped off the horse, hopped on this bike, see, and then um, had my horse still saddled up and just tied the reins around its neck and away we went. And then so I was going along and I caught up with those other two girls and I said, I give them the horses. I said, just follow my track over here. Follow my track. We'll go across this, over these couple of sandals and Michael and Shannon will be over there and we'll, we'll have a drink of tea when we get over there. And she, they said, right, eh? So away I went and they would come along with the horses. And the way they come over the flat, they said, anyway, they could see me laying out the flat and they come riding over and they said I was sitting up there and they thought I was joking, mucking around. 
like I wasn't doing anything outrageous. I suppose I was just doing my job, you know. So I just didn't do anything outrageous. Have an accident. It caused the accident. I just hit a, I hit a little sand man. I must have been looking at something else or thinking about something else. And that's how it all sort of happened. But, um, and they said, they told me to get up anyway. They looked at my face and it's all busted up and my coat's ripped off. Kylie called the um, ambulance in Birdswood Clinic and they got an ambulance rolling down because we were fairly remote. You couldn't land there. What, what injuries had you sustained? I'd fractured my neck in two places. Fractured 10 ribs, punctured a lung and fractured my skull in two spots. Um, they said I was in and out of, like I was conscious the whole time, but I'd be one minute I'd be normal. Next minute I'd be telling them, you know, something we did to do, we'd already done two days ago. I'd say, what are we doing here? We're going to go truck those cattle. And they said, we've done that two days ago. And someone would come along and say, no, get going, go truck them cattle. Yeah, I was laying there four or five hours and then um, ambulance come along and then there's probably another three or four hours back to Burzum because um, no road that they cut across country a fair bit of it and then yeah got back to Burzum and they called the called the, the flying doctor picked me up from there and took me to Mount Isa then um, and the fellow sorted the cattle out for me which is good I love the way you know the, the priority in your head still to this day is about the cattle it's just it's just remarkable no, was yeah. Like, yeah. You're, you're like all busted up and <laughs> that's and your biggest concern is what about the cattle? What about the cattle? Um, yeah, well that yeah, that comes from so how we grew up we were growing up, I suppose. Yeah, we we were just I remember dad um well, ten years ago now he smashed his hip in the cattle yard. His a bullet got him and smashed his hip up. Anyway, um mum said, What do you need? And he said, Oh, a cup of tea and a corn meat sandwich. Anyway, <laughs> We had to truck cattle, Sandy. I said to him, oh, what? I, he said, I'll go and get some morphine. I'll help you truck these cattle. If you give me some morphine, I'll be right. <laughs> but his hip was smashed up and he couldn't. Yeah, go, yeah, cattle coming first. You don't really worry about yourself. But, yeah, so I got flown to Mount Isa and Fiona was on the way to Mount Isa and mum and dad were coming up there. And when I was in Mount Isa, I had a respiratory failure. So they um, put me in an induced coma then. Um and flew me to Townsville with mum and dad found they were going on the, to Mount Island and that to divert to Townsville. We got up there and then I was in a coma for a bit, then juice coma and they got me out and and I had a, I kept having like um, dreams that I was walking around, see, because it must have been the medication I was on. And I was like, I was uh, having these dreams, I was up walking around, it wasn't too bad. And, and I see I was talking to people, I remember talking to people and they said, hey, you feel? I said, no. I'm good, I'm going to be right, eh? I reckon I'll be right in a couple of weeks, I'll be back at work, it was in two weeks. I went away at Fiona and everyone was up there and I had these dreams, I was walking around, I was telling people, I'm going to be right, eh? And Fiona and Dad were like, um, I don't think so, I don't think you're going to be right. Anyway, must have been medication wore off and I thought, jeez, I am busted off. And I was up there probably four weeks, three, ah, three weeks, I was in hospital and then they got me out, not to hang around Townsville for a little bit and then I just had a real yearning, I just wanted to be back here, I just, um, so I sort of winged it and and got a, and one of the mushroom pilots had come back in a helicopter, so I got a lift with him back here um, and hung around here for a bit until I realised again that I couldn't do anything because I was just sitting around the house. So then I went back down south and um, Fiona and I got a house down south, there's Spalding in South Australia, and um, so I went down there and sort of recovered and 
And then I was out action probably eight months. Yeah. Eight months. Wow. How how are you now? Ah, oh, good now. Yeah, my neck hurts a bit, but you know, I broke my neck, so you got to expect that. Um, yeah, but other than that, all good. I've got all clear from the doctor. Did a lot of physio because I didn't want to be like this sort of change the way what I'm doing or anything because I like what I'm doing. So um, I like riding horses. I like you know mustering. I like working cattle. So I didn't want anything to change that. So I, I did a lot of physio, did everything they told me I had to do, you know. And because I wasn't working and I was putting on a bit of weight, so I was running and trying to, you know, keep on, keep, because I want to go back to doing everything I was doing before. And I made a short point with a neurosurgeon. I said, I really want to do everything I was doing before. And so in the end, last appointment I did, he said, you're right. And I said, so I can do everything stupid I was doing before, I can do that again. And he said, oh, you're probably not, but... He said, you're not at any greater risk of hurting yourself than you were before. And I said, that's good, good enough for me. So now you're, you're, you're back there at Clifton Hill Station with Fiona and the two kids. And is life just continuing as you wanted it to continue? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, everything's back to normal. I, um, everything's, yeah, just how, how I wanted it to be, sort of. Um, no one, yeah, not getting busted up or I oh, like still getting, still doing everything I was doing before. And I just, I got more stories to tell now, I suppose. That's it. Do you have any lessons that you've learned in, in this um, adventure you've been on? I'd probably say wear a helmet. <laughs> but anyway, I wasn't wearing a helmet. Um, I just got off my horse, see, so I didn't have one with me. That's when that's what happens, but didn't it? When you say, I'll just do this quick little job. But I mean, like, we all done a first aid course now. The flying doctor organises all this whole station, all first aid course. They come in and train us up. Yeah, just doing that first aid course, we know how to handle those situations. Biggest lesson, and yeah, definitely to do what the doctor tells you anyway when you do get hurt. Peter, I'm a little embarrassed to ask, but do you consider yourself accident prone? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, Mum always said I was always having busters. Um, don't know if it's just me thinking about other things. I easily get, probably get distracted easily and think about something else, and that's why I'm getting hurt. Um, but I don't know why, why I'm getting busted up. Just one of those, one of those things. Yeah. I want to thank you for um, sharing your story today and giving insight into what it's like living in remote Australia, um, and also to tell us a little bit about some of your adventures um, and some insight into your lovely family. So, thank you so much for doing this interview. Easy. Thank you. I'm Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and thank you for listening to the Flying Doctor podcast. Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone who you think will love it too. Thank you for listening to the Flying Doctor podcast.